This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community. If you want to get a satellite view of the weather in your area, you go to the internet, right? Sure, we all do. You can fire up your web browser or the app on your mobile device and gaze upon the photos of clouds, infrared images, you name it. These images are provided typically from one of two sources, at least in the United States. One source might be a GOES satellite that's in a high orbit above our planet and These birds can see large areas of the globe at once. However, there are also the NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration satellites, and they're in much lower orbits at about 500 miles. They tend to get glimpses of more confined areas, say all of New England and perhaps down to the mid-Atlantic states. GOES and NOAA image data is freely available, and I don't just mean on the internet you can receive and decode their signals directly. It's all in the open. Nothing is encrypted. Now, admittedly, receiving the microwave signals from the distant GO satellites can be a challenge. I've never tried it myself yet. You need not only a receiver, but also a directional antenna and a low-noise amplifier. That being said, there are a lot of hobbyists who do this. My interest, though, is in the NOAA satellites, because they're much easier to receive. Their signals are clustered around 137 megahertz. Specifically, NOAA 15 transmits at 137.62 megahertz. You'll find NOAA 18 at 137.9125. And NOAA 19 can be heard at 137.1 megahertz. These satellites transmit image information in a rather wide multi-carrier signal. You can hear these NOAA signals with an ordinary 2-meter FM rig if it'll tune down to those frequencies, and many of them will these days. However, you won't be able to use that transceiver to decode the images. To do that, you need a receiver with at least a 34 kilohertz bandwidth, that frequency. Where do you find such a thing? Well, many software-defined radios have this capability including the very inexpensive RTL-SDR receivers and others like them. Some people refer to these as USB dongle radios because they look like USB memory sticks that you plug into your computer. If you decide to go this route, I'd strongly recommend spending about another 20 bucks for a low-noise preamp, especially if you're using an omnidirectional antenna like a 2-meter ground plane or J-pole. Here's an example of NOAA 18 received with an RTL-SDR receiver that I had attached to a preamp and just an ordinary ground plane antenna. It has a distinctive sound that you'll instantly recognize. For this recording, I was using SDR software called SDR Sharp, that I had configured for a 34 kilohertz bandwidth. So what does a NOAA satellite sound like if you're listening with the extended receive capabilities of an amateur FM transceiver? Well, here it is.
See what I mean? A narrow FM bandwidth just doesn't cut it. You can hear the satellite, but you'll never be able to decode an image from this signal. And what about decoding images? Well, to do that, you'll need software. There's one program that's been popular for a number of years, and it's called WXTOIMG. You feed the audio to the program, and it will process the tones and render an image right there on your monitor. Unfortunately, WXTOIMG is no longer supported by its author. In fact, it's what some people call abandonware. So now we have freeware, shareware, and abandonware. The program is still available, and in the podcast archive for this episode that you'll find at www.arrl.org forward slash eclectic, I'll put a link so you can go and find it. I haven't been able to run it successfully under the latest version of Windows 10, but you may have better luck. There's another piece of software that's currently supported and does work under Windows 10, and it's called NOAA APT Image Decoder. And I'll put the link for that software in the episode notes on the archive as well. This software takes the recorded audio and processes it into an image. You have to first receive the audio at its full bandwidth and record the audio to an audio WAV file. Many SDR applications have the ability to do this. Once you have the WAV file, you feed the file into the image decoder. It's not the most user-friendly software I've ever seen, and it does take some getting used to. But I've seen some pretty fascinating images extracted from those audio files. NOAA satellites are available for high-elevation passes in most areas of the country at least once a day. To find out when a pass is due in your area, just go to the AMSAT website at www.amsat.org and use their pass predictor. You put in your grid square so the software knows where you are, and then scroll down the list of satellites and you'll eventually find the three currently active NOAA birds. Select a satellite and you'll soon be presented with a list of upcoming passes with all the time shown in UTC. You'll notice most of the passes last between 10 and 15 minutes. Just take an ordinary 2-meter FM radio that'll receive down to 137 megahertz and just see if you can hear the bird. I've heard these satellites with just a handheld transceiver and a rubber duck antenna. Now, if you listen in this fashion, the signal is going to be very distorted. But it's fun just to hear it and realize that you're listening to a signal directly from a spacecraft. If you could get your hands on a receiver with sufficiently wide bandwidth, by all means, record the audio and run it through the software. I think you'll be surprised at what you'll see. I'm speaking with Nigel Vanderhoven, K7NVH, and we spoke with Nigel back in November for episode 21 of this podcast, and we talked about Hamwan and all that was going on there. Our telephone connection was a little bit suboptimal, and I apologize for that, but I think you'll find that this is quite well worth it. Good afternoon, Nigel. Howdy, Steve. Uh, Thanks for having me back. This time around, Nigel, I'd like to uh, take a little different tact because my understanding is that you've been developing or have developed uh, technology for use in amateur rocketry and balloons. Is that correct? Correct. Uh, I've I've been very fortunate to be able to work with a couple of professors here at the University of Washington and and help out with their programs. Now, when it comes to rocketry, uh, that's something that's dear to my heart. I did this way, way back in high school. 
what sort of rockets are we talking about? So, you know, you've got your typical consumer grade, um, you know, your besties uh, sorts of rockets that uh, you go to the local park and, and light off. Uh, those are reasonably low power. Uh, so in this case, we're talking about high power amateur rocketry. Uh, you get your, your kind of H and above uh, sorts of classes of motors. Uh, uh, we do lots of I's. Uh, up to, I think we've done some ends, uh, but typically we, we have to go out to uh, a range and, and uh, work with the FAA to authorize the, these flights. Is your range close by to where you are? Uh, typically, we've gone down uh, south to the uh, northwestern corner of Nevada to the Black Rock Desert. It's the same place that uh, Burning Man occurs, at, uh, though we go at a different time of year. Uh, it's, it's one of the ranges where we can get a, uh, a very high waiver. Uh, from the FAA, make sure that we're not going to be impinging on any air traffic. We've also visited a, a place in Oregon as well as uh, in eastern Washington where we can uh, have some room to room to breathe. And what sort of technology are you putting in or on the rockets? And what's the relationship to amateur radio if there is one there? Certainly. So you know, we've had you know a number of these rockets uh, fly, and in our earlier days, uh, consumer uh, commercially available GPS trackers and things were uh, harder to come by. And so myself and, and uh, another a couple of folks have worked over the years to create, you know, we call them the, the flight computers. Uh, they don't generally control any of the, the major aspects of the rocket. We're not guiding anything. Uh, they will often control parachute deployment. We, we look at accelerometer and barometer data. Uh, to uh, determine when would be appropriate time to deploy our drogue and main parachutes. And then we also use uh, frequently amateur radio to send back GPS data so we can get a good track of where these rockets land. Because surprisingly enough, even if you have a perfectly flat dry lake bed miles and miles across, rockets can be remarkably hard to find. What frequencies are you using to send that GPS data back to Earth? Typically, in, in these cases, we've been using the 77-meter band or the 23-centimeter band. Um, so these are you know, bands where it's easy to find cheap, cheaply available transmitters that were designed to be kind of ISM adjacent. Uh, and that we, you know, we will use them and then throw a call sign on them as well. I can imagine that weight and uh, the density or the size must be a factor. Certainly, in these cases, we're not we're not taking a uh, you know your typical handheld from from Yesu or something and, and strapping it in there. We're we're getting raw radio modules uh, in some cases down to you know I've I've built boards with raw chip level uh, radios and then we put them on uh, integrated circuit boards and along with the the other sensing electronics and the the microprocessors we need to to manage the system. So the radios are quite small, correct? Yes. So you know, in either, you know, in some cases they can be you know an integrated module, you know, where you know it'll give us a couple of pins where we'll have you know a power and enable and a and a modulation input. Uh, in some cases, it's it's a raw integrated circuit chip itself that will mount on the board, and we have to supply all of the the filtering and the inductors and and everything else to support that chip. Um, but in either case, they're they're very compact. I can imagine also that these rockets must be going to a fairly high altitude. 
they certainly can be. Uh, you know, not all of our our rockets are. You know, we don't we don't aim for the height in it in every flight. Uh, a lot of these because these are our student experiments aren't necessarily pushing the boundaries. They're they're still learning on on how to build you know construction techniques and and what to expect. But we've had flights uh, up to about forty thousand feet, and then we've had uh, flights about up to about Mach two point two. The parachute deployment, uh, that is triggered, you said, by the electronics also? Typically, yes. So in in these cases, you know, especially with particularly high flights, uh, we don't want to deploy a main parachute at Apogee. And so we are using the electronics. We uh, are watching our accelerometer data uh, to determine when we're in the end of powered flight as well as when we're below Mach. Uh, So we can safely use our barometer data because when we're above Mach, uh, our barometer data is not valid. So we use the accelerometer to give us some general idea about where we're at in, in the phase of flight. Once we move into a safe phase of flight, then we're watching our barometer data, watching it decrease as, as we increase in altitude. Uh, eventually, it'll swing over, the sign will change, and we will know that we've hit uh, our apogee. Uh, typically, at that point, we'll deploy our drogue chute, just a small chute to kind of slow us down a little bit, but not let us drift too far. Uh, and then we continue watching barometer data down to, you know, four or 500 feet. And then we'll deploy our main chute that'll be large enough to uh, fully uh, slow down the rocket so it doesn't uh, damage itself uh, when it hits the ground, but also doesn't let it leave it to drift too far so it's easier to recover. So the data coming down on the radio link must be fairly consistent for you to be able to do that at the appropriate time, right? So in this case, you know, the, the flight computer is, is in, entirely in control of this. We are not remotely commanding when the parachutes should be deployed. So typically, you know, this is all this is all coded in the software for when when it determines when it's needed to happen. So this removes us from any sort of link failure being a problem in, in terms of safe recovery of the rocket. We do send back uh, telemetry data. Generally speaking, we keep that to be a, a pretty limited data set. Any additional stuff we'll often store on on board the computer in, in some Flash or, or EEPROM. But typically, we will try to get back GPS data and and uh, perhaps some altitude. And so that way, we can use that just as a quick, here's where it is, you know, that gives us an indicator for where we need to go for recovery. I'm making the transition to discussing high-altitude balloon projects, are you using much of this same hardware for those flights as well? They are, are similarly inspired, yes. Uh, we, you know, there are obviously a number of different uh, considerations, you know, in terms of rocketry. Our accelerometer data is uh, very important to us. We need to have a wide dynamic range. You know, we could be doing 20, 30, 40 Gs, uh, and a lot of accelerometers aren't aren't really rated for that. Uh, in terms of the balloon, you know, we we don't really care about the accelerometers at all, and so typically we don't include those. Uh, similarly, in terms of the barometer uh, for rocketry, we we don't really need super high accuracy, and we're not going high enough that that we need super special barometers. And so we can use pretty much anything off the shelf, and that will work fine for the balloon experiments. We're going to such a high altitude and such a low external pressure, we need to use specialized uh, barometers so we can accurately sense what the, the atmospheric pressure is there and get a, a judgment on altitude. 
Are you using the technique of allowing the balloon to expand at high altitude and then burst? Yes. So the payload then descends uh, with a parachute after the balloon has actually burst, just like the other amateur radio balloon projects, at least that I'm familiar with. Correct. And, and yeah, I would say, you know, from what I'm familiar with, with various other, other ballooning projects, that is by far the, the typical method. Uh, you know, there are various different regulations that require means of control, and it's it's considered a passive means of control that at a certain point the balloon will get high enough that it will burst or it will age enough. UV will damage the, the latex of the balloon enough that will it will age enough and come down. So these are considered passive methods of control. Uh, occasionally, depending on the size and weight of your payload, you may be required to, to have active means of control as well. What sort of active means would you use, or how would that work? So in our case, you know, we, you know, we specifically design our, our payloads to not require that, um, but that could be any number of means that you could could think of. That could be a bit of, of resistance wire wrapped around the, the nylon uh, cord that, that holds your payload to the balloon. So when you get to a, a certain point or time or receive a remote command, you could heat that up and melt the, melt the line and... and initiate your descent. You could have a, a mechanical cutting device. You could you could do almost anything. And your balloons, are the ones you've been involved with, are they relatively short flights, or are you doing what I've seen in recent years, these around-the-world, very long-duration flights? Those are actually very interesting flights. I, I've, I've, I've also been following those, but ours are, are typically aimed at, at being significantly shorter. You know, like I've mentioned, these are uh, classes with students and we're, we're oriented on uh, both of them are, are somewhat introductory and so we're oriented on getting the students exposure to these uh, sorts of scientific endeavors building payloads coming up with theories about what they're going to see from their sensor uh, readings and then getting the data back and so in our cases we inflate the balloons to expect to go up quickly reach a, an apogee and pop and then come down quickly as well so we typically see an hour and a half or two hours of ascent and then about a half hour of descent. I have to ask, have you been successful uh, in virtually all cases recovering the balloons? Uh, it, it varies from year to year. Uh, some of our earlier years, uh, we you know, had a, a much more difficult uh, case of finding them. Uh, as years went on and, and we built more systems to, to better track them, we've had significantly more success. We've also had a number of cases where we haven't necessarily had first-party success, but we label uh, all these packages, and you know, when we fly them out in eastern Washington, you know, they'll land in a farmer's field, and and come harvest season or or uh, planting season, they'll find them in the fields, and and will contact us and return them. For your most recent projects, are you using GPS to track it primarily all the way to recovery? Typically, yes. Uh, we we do uh, try to. Use GPS as much as possible. It, it gives us the best uh, best indication of where anything is. Um, you know, high altitude ballooning with GPS does come with uh, some complications uh, because there are restrictions on using GPS at certain speeds or altitudes. Uh, so we have to find uh, proper GPS modules that will allow that to work. But it, it is certainly possible, and, and we do we do fly GPS. Well, that must be. Frankly, not only educational, but a heck of a lot of fun. The rockets, too, for that matter. Very much so. That's something that I've wanted to do for many, many years and just uh, 
never had the opportunity. I would definitely love to get out to Nevada. I know that's been going on for a number of years and uh, see those launches. It's it's really a remarkable place and, and a remarkable event. I know there are events beyond what we do uh, down there at the Black Rock Desert. Um, so there, there are various opportunities for people who are interested in high power rocketry to to visit, and including you know, I'm sure much more local to to any of your listeners. Uh, there are are high power amateur rocketry clubs all over the country, but the Black Rock Desert is is a very unique moon like Martian, entirely distant from just about anything anyone experiences on a daily level. Well, thank you very much for your time, Nigel. This is informative, as always. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech, produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic at arrl.org. This episode is copyright ARRL, and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time.